Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 17th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, considering major constitutional and appellate cases and questions. A group of Los Angeles residents has asked the U.S. Supreme Court to fix what the plaintiffs argue is a racially gerrymandered city council district. More precisely, in a petition for review filed in March, they've requested that the high court reverse a summary judgment grant to allow the constitutional claims to be aired at trial and to allow the plaintiffs to question city officials as to their motivations in redrawing the district in question. That district is the LA City Council District Number 10. Per the city's charter, it, like 14 other districts, was redrawn in 2012 after the last census. District 10 includes historically African-American neighborhoods like Limert Park and Baldwin Hills, and it's been represented on the city council by an African-American going back to 1963, when Tom Bradley won the seat, which he'd hold for 10 years before becoming the city's first black mayor. But today, it's a racially diverse district. Before the last redistricting, its citizen voting age population was 37% African-American, 28% Hispanic, 17% Asian, and 16% white. Early on in the redrawing process, one member of the Citizen Redistricting Commission tasked with District 10's redraw emailed fellow commissioners to stress that he sought to bolster the African-American voting block in the district, ensuring it would continue to elect black representatives. Eventually, after multiple rounds of public comment and revisions, District 10's African-American voting age population did increase by just under 4%. The white voting age population decreased about the same amount, and the Asian citizen voting population dipped by 1%. After the new maps were finalized, the district's councilman, Herb Wesson, also the council president, told a religious congregation in the community that he'd done his best to help ensure District 10 would keep being represented by an African-American member for, he said, the next 30 years. So Wesson's comments, those of the commissioner, Chris Ellison, and the numerical changes prompted this suit from a group of both Korean and Caucasian Los Angeles residents. The district court dismissed it at the summary judgment stage, and the Ninth Circuit affirmed, reasoning that even if Wesson and Ellison were principally motivated by racial concerns, the process was much larger than them, involving dozens of other participants and several rounds of revisions such that the overall product couldn't be seen as tainted by race-based motives. Also, the lower court granted a protective order, keeping the plaintiffs from deposing, for instance, Herb Wesson or other participants in the process. The plaintiffs and their counsel of record, Rex Heinke, argue that, at the very least, there was enough evidence for the case to get to trial. And he says the plaintiffs should have had more of a chance to ask the defendants about their motivations. Rex will join us in just a moment, and then we'll hear from two attorneys on the city side who recently filed their brief opposing the petition for cert. They are Robin Johansson, founding partner at Remcho Johansson and Purcell LLP in Oakland, and also Deputy City Attorney Harit Trivedi down here in Los Angeles. In their view, like in the Ninth Circuit, statements by just two members of an undertaking as sprawling as the L.A. City Council redistricting are not enough to support an equal protection claim. Moreover, they argue that all map redraws will disfavor some groups and that Supreme Court review must be reserved for instances of the most extreme racial gerrymandering, which they say Council District 10 is not. We'll hear from all of our guests in just a moment, but first... One reminder, don't forget that CLE credit is available to to listeners of our podcast. It's very easy to claim. It also helps support this show if you do. Just go to dailyjournal.com, take a short true-false test that you can find on this podcast's page. Once you've taken that and remitted the corresponding very competitive fee, one hour of California CLE credit will be yours. Okay, without any further preamble then, Rex Heinke is a partner at Aiken, Gump, Strass, Hauer, and Feld LLP here in Los Angeles. He's a veteran appellate advocate of more than 150 arguments and also a friend of the podcast. Rex, thanks for being back on. 
Well, thanks for inviting me. Good to be here again. Great. Um, so you have asked the U.S. Supreme Court to take a look at this Ninth Circuit case, Lee versus the city of Los Angeles. It centers around the Los Angeles City Council District Number 10, and your claim is that it was redrawn in an impermissible way with race too much taken into account. Um, starting sort of broadly, uh, and then we'll get into some of your specific arguments, but what what is wrong, in your opinion, with City Council District 10? Well, maybe two things. The first is City Council District 10 bisects Koreatown, which is a historic neighborhood in Los Angeles and where the community has strong ties. And our clients believe that Koreatown should be united in one city council district. And they also object to the fact that in redistricting city council district 10, we believe, we allege that the predominant reason it was drawn the way it was, was racially motivated. We'll get into sort of exactly why it matters, that word predominant. With a couple of Supreme Court precedents I wanted to just flag before we, we go any further, one being a Shaw versus Reno. That relates to this case, and it's also about some local um, district drawing. Um, what? Why is that relevant, I guess, and what is a, a Shaw district? Yeah, Shaw district or a Shaw claim refers to that case in which the Supreme Court recognized that if you drew legislative boundaries, whether for a city council or a state legislature or for Congress, if you drew those for a predominantly racial reason, that violated the 14th Amendment. So a Shaw claim is a claim that a legislative district has been drawn based predominantly on race. And then that case, I think, was from a couple of decades ago, right? We've had a couple more recent ones out of North Carolina in the last year or two, Cooper versus Harris, and then the Bethune-Hill case. And those sort of update the constitutional rule, but is it largely the same that, again, a district can't be drawn if the predominant reason for the boundaries being set a particular way is, is race? Is that still the constitutional rule? That's the basic rule. Let's dive into that claim over the the reason for the the drawing um, of Council District 10. There are basically a couple of statements that are cited in, in your briefing and in the Ninth Circuit opinion that are pointed to as evidence that race was a predominant factor. One, by Commissioner Chris Ellison, who, uh, as I understand it, oversaw the sort of proposed initial new boundaries for, for CD10. And, right. And then also it, uh, City Council President Herb Wesson, who also, uh, I think, spoke publicly after the finalization of the district. Tell me about those uh, two points of evidence. Well, the additional thing about the relationship is the City Council uh, President appointed Mr. Ellison. So Mr. Ellison was his designee. And that the city council president is the incumbent in council district 10. So it was his council district. And so the the first of those two gentlemen, uh, Mr. Ellison, expressly sort of said, and I think as uh, um, statements in the sort of working group proposing the, the changes, and then and I think in an email that um, his intended purpose was to draw the line to sort of boost the African-American 
voting population in the district a bit further and to sort of ensure it remained very likely the, the district would elect a council representative that was African-American for the you know, s- several years to come. Is that right? Right. And the evidence is clear that, in fact, the number of African-American voters in what was what became Council District 10 was increased from the prior Council District 10 and that the number of white voters was reduced. Sure. And I mean, we should flag, I suppose, the specific numbers there, you know, not outrageously high. So we're talking about four points, sort of both ways, so four percentage points. The, the citizen voting age population of African-Americans was increased. And then uh, the inverse um, of the white voting age population was decreased by four points. Is that right? Uh, I think those are the, the correct numbers. But the additional point is that the city council president had said that to ensure that an African-American would be elected in that district, the number of African-American voters needed to be over 40 percent, and they were increased to slightly over 40 percent. Yeah, I think the number went from something around 37 to 41. How specifically was that done? So in terms of, I mean, you're pointing to the um, statements made by um, Ellison in Wesson, but then also just the actual drawing itself. So just describe to me how CD10 was was altered. Well, essentially, uh, I mean, there were were a number of alterations, but the essential alterations were that on the southern side of the district, a number of uh, historically African-American neighborhoods were added to CD10, and on the west side of CD10, a number of predominantly Caucasian neighborhoods were moved out of CD10. In the Ninth Circuit's view, so you've been on this case for a while, the Ninth Circuit heard the claim and affirmed a summary judgment grant against your clients, finding that, okay, race was you know pretty clearly a factor here, but not the predominant one. And they cite the fact that, okay, we have Ellison and Wesson you know, making pretty explicit claims that race was their motivator, maybe even their predominant motivator, but they're only two parties in a, a, a group effort that also involves the public that, you know, is commenting on proposed maps that go out and come back and get altered. And so you have, I think, a proposal that Ellison had headed that boosted the number of the African-American voting age population by closer to seven points. That gets diluted back to four from the original intent. So, you know, you factor all that in and there are other factors. So even if these two members have predominantly race on their mind, you couldn't say the whole project was about race. You know, what's your response to, to that reasoning? Well, there are two things I think that are important. The first is this is summary judgment. And you're right, the district court granted summary judgment against our clients and the Ninth Circuit affirmed that. But on summary judgment, the court is not supposed to weigh the evidence. The court is only supposed to determine whether there is a triable issue of fact. And we submit that with the evidence that we offered, there was certainly a triable issue of fact as to what is the predominant reason for the decision. Also, the fact that there are a whole bunch of other people involved in this doesn't prove or disprove our contention because the city offered no evidence 
as to what their motivation was or why they did what they did. It simply said, this is what they did. And that brings us to the other big issue in this appeal, which is we wanted to take discovery of those people and ask them why they did what they did. And we were barred from doing that on the basis that there is a legislative privilege that prohibits discovery from legislators as to why they acted as they did. And of course, since we were barred from that evidence, we couldn't prove or even know why the other people did what they did. So you would have hoped to have spoken to or gotten a testimony from, I assume, Herb Wesson, for instance. Who, who are there among the, the central parties in this? Well, we would have deposed other people on the city council, city council members and maybe members of their staff. We asked for documents from them and so on. We were prohibited from having any discovery of any of that information. Right. So the, the district court granted a, a protective order. And so you Correct. largely relied then on those two statements we've already spoken about, which were made in, in public and in sort of in communications throughout the earlier process. A couple of questions on that uh, legislative privilege question. So you know, there are basically two questions that you're putting before the U.S. Supreme Court. We haven't really clarified them yet. Neither one of them is that you're asking the Supreme Court to say, okay, hey, C- CD10 is definitely an impermissibly drawn boundary that breaks the equal protection clause. You're saying that that um, summary judgment standard used was improper and also that the court should have let you depose some of these uh, individuals, right? Is that those are the two questions? Those are the two questions. And specifically, okay, as to the legislative privilege one, you say there's some, some tension in existing Supreme Court precedent between two cases basically that say, I guess, in your view, disagree with how big of a burden it is for plaintiffs to get testimony from uh, local state right. and local there, officials that have other sort of things to do, and so how big of a burden is it? There are two cases. One is called Village of Arlington, and the other one is called Gilla. In Village of Arlington, the Supreme Court said in dicta that uh, legislators should seldom have to testify about their motivation. In Gillock, the federal government was criminally prosecuting a state legislator who claimed the legislative privilege and said, I don't have to testify about my motivation. And the Supreme Court in that case said that when there's an important federal interest involved, then the legislate, any legislative privilege doesn't exist and you should be able to question a legislature, legislator about his or her motivation. The Ninth Circuit relied on the first case. We say that that was error, but what we're asking the Supreme Court to do is to explain when one of those cases applies and when the other one applies. As we say in our cert petition, they are intention to say the least, since one seems to say there is no legislative privilege when there's an important federal interest involved, and certainly legislative districts who that are not racially drawn is an important federal interest. And Village of Arlington, which seems to say, uh, again, in dicta, but says that you can seldom depose people, legislators, about their motivation. And the cases don't cite each other. 
one policy argument that the Ninth Circuit cited and that the other side has also is that, you know, that reasoning from Village of Arlington Heights sort of makes sense in that legislators are definitely always going to be talking about some pretty hot button and sensitive topics. And, you know, you would want them to feel pretty free to have robust argument to put forward, um, you know, all sorts of different views and come to the correct conclusions, not feel constrained thinking that, you know, they're, they will be asked later, you know, what were you thinking before this bill came out? You know, so what is your response to that argument that it is a pretty intrusive thing to have legislators always thinking they might be um, called into a deposition room a couple years later and ask them, you know, what arguments they were making in a legislative chamber? Well, at least two things about that. The first is it's not our position that you can file a suit like ours and then go and depose every legislator that was involved in the, in the case. Our position is there should be a qualified legislative privilege, but that when you have the evidence we do of direct racial motivation in drawing a city council district, when you make that kind of showing, you should be able to then depose the other legislators involved. So we're not saying there's never a privilege or a barrier to this discovery. We are saying that when we've someone, us or someone else who's made a substantial showing of improper motivation for drawing legislative districts, then discovery is uh, and should be permissible. You, you say you've made something of showing. And I, one other question I have about this this privilege argument is, I guess, how much showing do you think you would get or would even need to get? I mean, the intent of at least these two parties, Ellison and Wesson, is, you know, manifestly pretty clear. They both said they're not hiding the ball. They're saying we're trying to draw this district to make sure it elects an African-American leader. So, you know, it seems like you kind of have the evidence that you would need uh, or that any, any sort of further evidence would just sort of it wouldn't be any more explicit in terms of intent. I guess, what would you be hoping to find? Well, you would hope to find evidence of why people voted for it, why they uh, increased or decreased the number of different racial categories of voters in that district. But what you just said, which is, well, you've already got a lot of evidence that demonstrates racial motivation is why we say summary judgment shouldn't have been granted. If you don't if you can get summary judgment, even when you have this amount of evidence of racial motivation, then it's hard to see how you can win one of these cases as a plaintiff unless the defendants are just incredibly stupid and go around publicly saying repeatedly that they were racially motivated. Because the effect of this decision is to say, one, you can't depose people about this legislators, so you can't get evidence from them. And even if you have some evidence because they did speak publicly, that's not going to be sufficient because we're going to deny your motion, or, sorry, going to grant summary judgment against you because you don't have enough evidence. But we can't get enough evidence if we can't talk to the other people who are involved in the process and who the Ninth Circuit points to and says, oh, well, all these other people were involved, so the process wasn't racially motivated. The question we have is, how do you know? So to that summary judgment standard question, that's 
the other main one that you put before the Supreme Court, and this might get a little bit in the weeds, but you say the standard was misapplied based on a Supreme Court precedent hunt versus Cromarty. Um, could you unpack that for me a little bit? What's that claim? Well, it's just the Shaw claim. It's one of the cases that has interpreted Shaw and what the standard is. But what that case basically says that motivation is ordinarily a factual question that cannot be decided on summary judgment. And that's exactly what our position is, that when you have some evidence of the motivation that was improper, and we have other evidence besides the statements from these two people, but they're certainly the clearest evidence that we have. But when you have that kind of evidence, then we submit, and we think that's what that case says, that you can't grant summary judgment. Some of those other factors involved in, in, in uh, redistricting that are, are permissible are you know, ones that can sort of sound similar or bleed over into racially motivated factors like keeping historic neighborhoods together. You know, CD10 has been a historically African-American district. It includes Weimart Park, sections of Baldwin Hills, neighborhoods you know, that have historically been African-American. And so, you know, what, you know, how do you argue that, okay, clearly this is a, a race-motivated issue and it's not just a trying to keep neighborhoods together issue, which is, you know, like a kind of one of those things you want to be doing when you're drawing council districts? Well, certainly a factor and a permissible factor is to try and keep neighborhoods together. That's part of our contention about Koreatown. But if you look at what happened here, even though Council District 10 had, on its southern boundary, had neighborhoods that were historically African-American, they had not been part of Council District 10, but they were added. And neighborhoods that had been part of Council District 10 on the west side that were largely Caucasian were removed. And it was because the goal was to increase the number of African-American voters in Council District 10. So the motivation was not, we want to put together traditional African-American districts. The motivation was to increase the number of African-American voters in Council District 10. That, we submit, is impermissible. And one other main counterargument in the city's briefing is that, you know, redistricting is a a pretty, you know, messy process and, and one that is is going to involve a lot of different numbers and statistics that folks could, you know, point to in lots of different maps and say, you know, here's some evidence that this ethnic group's representation went up a few points or down a few points. And so, you know, we have, maybe we have a claim, but because of that, the courts should sort of reserve their powder for instances where you have really extreme gerrymanders. So here the difference was only four points. The district looks pretty natural. It doesn't look like one of those funny salamanders. You know, the, the other side cites Justice O'Connor in a case of Miller v. Johnson saying, you know, we want to only step in in extreme instances. So why do you think the Supreme Court should step in here? Is this one of those extreme instances? I think so. When you have the kind of evidence we presented, and especially when you're talking about summary judgment, there's, there's no doubt absolutely clear that the motivation of the city council president and his designee on the redistricting commission 
had one motivation and only one, to ensure that that district was African-American for decades and that they expressly sought to fulfill that goal by increasing the number of African-American voters. If that isn't evidence that demonstrates racially motivated gerrymandering, and I don't know what is. One, one last one. You know, this case, were the Supreme Court to grant it, would conclude, you know, it were, it were to grant it and side for you and kick it back down for a trial. I mean, that would extend past even the next time this new redrawing process comes around, wouldn't it? So I guess at this stage, why is it important to continue to pursue the matter, if, even if these maps are sort of going out of existence soon? Well, there are a couple of responses to that. One is we tried to, for example, expedite the appeal in this case, and the city opposed that on the grounds that, no, no, the case would be resolved soon enough so it wouldn't become moot. So the city's previous position was, no, 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 we want to, don't want to expedite it because it's not going to be moot. Now that some time's gone by, they switched their position and said, oh, no, 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 it's going to be moot, so you should dismiss it. We submit the city can't have it both ways. But in addition, these are the kinds of issues that are going to recur. The issue of legislative privilege is unsettled and would be an issue in any further redistricting challenges. Also, the Supreme Court has held expressly that since new legislative districts are based on old legislative districts, the challenge to the old ones is not moot because they will be the basis for the new ones. Okay. Um, Rex Heinke from Aking Up, partner there. Appreciate your time. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Before we hear from our next guests, one other reminder to listeners, hopefully you have found this out by now, but we are available on iTunes and the podcast app and a variety of the streaming media avenues. So find us there by searching for Weekly Appellate Report. Doing so and subscribing to the show, rating us, reviewing us is all tremendously helpful as it lets other folks find the program. Now to hear the city's point of view, I'm happy to welcome in two attorneys in Los Angeles' corner here. First, welcome to Robin Johansson, founding partner of Rancho Johansson and Purcell in Oakland. Robin, welcome to the show. Thank you. And also Harit Trivedi, deputy Los Angeles city attorney down here in Los Angeles. Um, thank you very much for joining the show, Mr. Trivedi. Oh, thanks for having me. To start out, I've just spoken with Rex Heikis, who, who presented um, certainly a, a different framing about this case than I imagine you guys have of it. Um, Harit, can I ask you, broadly speaking, and then we'll get into a few of the more specific arguments, why the Supreme Court should not uh, jump in and grant review in this appeal? Sure, and thanks for uh, giving us an opportunity to uh, discuss the case with you today. Um, you know, the Supreme Court really should not take this case. Every judge that has looked at this case has ruled in the city's favor, both on the claim that the city somehow engaged in racial gerrymandering here and on the claim that the legislative privilege was misapplied. Um, Judge Marshall and the district court ruled in the city's favor on those grounds, and the Ninth Circuit unanimously, with Judge Wynn writing for the unanimous panel, also agreed that the city should prevail here. And to understand why every judge has ruled this way, I think it's important to get an understanding of the nature of the city's process generally, and also specifically how it was applied here. So it may be helpful to step back and, and look at that process. And there's two principal points, I think, that um, that we want to make. And one is, you know, the city is unique here. It uses a Citizens Redistricting Commission 
to take the laboring oar and drawing the lines in the first instance. And second, both that commission and the council, when it got those lines, they engaged in an extensive and lengthy and thoroughly public process where the lines were debated and changed and, and changed again during public meetings over and over again. And every turn, the uh, focus was on traditional redistricting criteria, healing neighborhood splits, reducing population deviation, keeping compact districts. It was not on race. So this is not the type of case I think the Supreme Court should take for uh, to address the racial gerrymandering cause of action. Now, briefly on our redistricting commission, you're maybe unfamiliar with it, but we, in 1989, the city uh, adopted a charter amendment, the voters did, to create a 21-member citizens redistricting commission that would convene every 10 years to withdraw the city's 15 council districts based on the census. So this commission um, is charged in the charter with conducting a public review, taking public testimony, and redrawing the lines based on total population and trying to equalize that population as nearly as practical across the lines of districts and to comply with state and federal law and to the extent feasible keep neighborhoods intact. So in 2011, September of 2011, the commission convened to redraw the lines after the 2010 census. And it embarked on a seven-month extensive public process to do so. And a few features of that I think are helpful um, to understand the context behind what the courts ruled here. One is the commission immediately began by hiring professional staff. It had an executive director, public outreach personnel. It was advised at all times by the city attorney's office. And the commission fairly early in its process decided to abide, decided to set some standards for its work, to abide by two particular traditional redistricting criteria that it wanted to keep at the forefront. One is to reduce population deviation, which is the deviation of population across districts to less than 5%, plus or minus 5%. That was narrower than in the previous map, which was over 10%. And second, the city now has a group of neighborhood councils that are enshrined in our charter. And there were 95 neighborhood councils that had been formed when the commission began its work. And the commission decided that these neighborhoods should be kept together to the extent feasible and set out a goal of keeping two-thirds of them together. So those two criteria, the population deviation at 5% and keeping two-thirds of the neighborhood councils together in one district, those were some of the goals that the commission started out with and kept at the front of its uh, mind as it was going through the process. So the commission embarked on seven months of public hearings. They didn't think they conducted 39 public hearings, solicited thousands of public testimonies, pieces of testimony, and solicited draft maps from the public. They began by drawing some of their lines in regional groups and to work with the software, the redistricting software in the line drawer, and then presented those regional maps into a draft map for the commission to consider. Now that commission considered that map in public and went through change after change after change of that map in exhaustive public hearings. I remember one hearing eight hours long, 80 changes of amendments to the map being debated. So it's quite an extensive public process. And at the end of that process, the commission produced a 951-page report describing its work and recommending a draft map to the city council. The city council then took up the map and had its own series of public hearings across the city and debated again several public, publicly debated several amendments to the commission's draft before arriving at a final map. Now, the point here to describe this exhaustive process is, is to express how unique and public and the uh, process in Los Angeles was. 
very different, I think, than some of the other jurisdictions that have had cases before the Supreme Court in recent years. And here also the process put at the foreground traditional redistricting criteria of keeping neighborhoods and communities of interest together and reducing population deviation. And so quickly I'll say that what we arrived at at the end of the day was a final citywide map that adhered to traditional redistricting criteria. It maintained communities of interest intact. Even in the previous map, we had 95 neighborhood councils and only 42 of them were kept whole in one district. But as a result of the 2012 map, 64 neighborhood councils were kept whole in one district, reducing their splits. And neighborhood councils that had been split into three different districts were reduced from 14 to, to four. So it was quite successful in terms of healing neighborhood splits. It also reduced the population deviation across districts from 10% to 5% and maintained compact districts. Now the claim by plaintiffs here is specifically regard to Council District 10. So if I can just take a minute to describe what Council District 10's features were at the end of the day. And the court here ruled that the extensive evidence in the record established that Council District 10's lines were drawn to comply with traditional redistricting criteria and were not drawn predominantly for racial reasons. Now, Council District 10 is a diverse district. It's in the heart of the city, and it's not any single uh, ethnic or racial group that has a majority in the city. It's not an African-American majority city by any stretch. Um, the population, African-American population, I believe, is only 25, 30%. And the citizen voting age population, which is an important measure for voting strength in the jurisprudence, is at 40%, which is just 3% higher than the 2002 map. All of the changes the record showed for CD10 were meant and done to better unify the neighborhoods within the vicinity of CD10 to heal the neighborhood splits that had existed before. And two specific changes I think are worth noting finally. And one is that when the commission presented its map to council, council made a major change across the city. And that change actually reduced the African-American population, citizen voting age African-American population of council district 10 by 3%. And also, the plaintiffs here represent that Wilshire Center Koreatown Neighborhood Council, one of our large neighborhood councils, should have been kept whole in one district. The final map actually consolidated 70% of that neighborhood council in Council District 10, which is much more of a consolidation and unification of that district or council dis that had been previous. And that neighborhood council is has a very low African-American population. So the result of that was actually to reduce the African-American population of Council District 10, which kind of flies in the face of an argument that somehow CD10 was racially gerrymandered to benefit African-Americans. So in drawing CD10, the city adhered to redistricting criteria. The Ninth Circuit and the district court before it both found that the evidence, um, the objective evidence was overwhelming on this front. And there was, on the record, no reason to deny summary judgment to the city. You know, all of that seems to say, you know, describing the, the sprawling process that ropes in a lot of participants, both um, city officials and the public, you know, goes along with what the Ninth Circuit is saying, that even if you do have these two participants, Chris Ellison and, and Herb Wesson, that have explicitly noted that, you know, one motivator, and it seems not unfair to say perhaps their predominant motivator is uh, ensuring African-American representation and an African-American leader for CD10 for the foreseeable future. Even if that's the case, you know, there are just so many other factors and participants that you couldn't say that even those, even if those two folks had the predominant motivation, 
that was race related. That wouldn't mean the overall final product was uh, racially drawn. Is that you know fair summation? Uh, it's it's fair. I think that, I mean the Ninth Circuit and the District Court before it got it right here. You know, on the one hand, you have this mountain of objective evidence showing the reasons why and the proper reasons why the lines were drawn the way they were. And plaintiffs come with two statements, one from a commissioner of the redistricting commission that was made early in the process, and another was from Council President Wesson, who made a statement to some constituents after the final map was adopted. And the court rightly decided that in both, with regard to both of those pieces of evidence, you can't ascribe a statement of one commissioner to the entire commission or one council member to the motivation of the entire legislative body. And, you know, with the commissioner, you know, you, you had also a situation where he made a statement early in the process, but then subsequent to that statement, the map that the commission debated was publicly changed over and over again. And the Ninth Circuit found that highly relevant, that there was a suble- subsequent public vetting and several successive changes to the map after um, that statement was made. So, And one of the larger changes, frankly, when the map went to the council, undid some of the uh, the changes that that commissioner wanted to do. So I think that evidence was highly relevant to it. And with regard to Council Member Wesson's statement, you you know, you have to look at that statement in context. It was after the fact, and he was speaking to a specific community, a, a group of African-American clergy who were expressing concerns with the final map and explaining to them what he, what he wanted to convey to them about the map. And the courts have, have held that that type of post-hoc political statement or rationalization to constituents is not highly relevant. And what is relevant here is what the council actually did, which was take a commission map and reduce the African-American citizen voting age population in CD10 of that map by 3%, which objectively reflects that there was no racial gerrymandering going on here. And Brian, this is Robin. I, I, I think that it's important to contrast the evidence in this case with the evidence in almost every Shaw case that the court has has ruled on. And and what you see in these other Shaw cases is not just a a much less public process, but you see a when when the decision makers are speaking publicly they are adopting target benchmark target percentages for a particular racial group either to comply with section 5 of the voting rights act as as it was in effect at the time or because they felt that they needed to maintain a particular uh target percentage in order to uh comply with other provisions of the voting rights act so it's a very different kind of situation here than what you see in the other cases. Sure. You know, one thing that strikes me from the plaintiff's petition is from the plaintiff's petition and from speaking with Rex Heinke is that even, you know, assuming just the the qualm is not necessarily that the court didn't agree with the plaintiffs that this CD10 this district was racially gerrymandered, but just that the court decided it at the summary judgment stage, notwithstanding the evidence that the plaintiffs had put forward, the, the statements of Ellison and, and Wesson. You know, Harit, why, in your view, isn't that evidence just enough to let the court at least go to, to trial on these claims? You know, the court here, and, and Robin can jump in on this one as well, the court here 
properly as, uh, applied the standards for racial gerrymandering from the Shaw versus Reno case and more recently articulated in the Bethune Hill case. And I think the answer to your question really is the proper application of the standard here is that you you need to show that race was the predominant factor in drawing the council district boundaries. So much so that you have to establish that it, the plaintiffs have to establish, and it's a heavy burden for the plaintiffs to establish, that they subordin- the city subordinated all other factors in favor of race. And the record here, as the Ninth Circuit exhaustively reviewed, simply did not have enough in it to even come close to making that showing. And the courts have also held, the Supreme Court has held, that summary judgment is proper in favor of a defendant when a plaintiff has failed to demonstrate that traditional redistricting criteria were subordinated to race. And that's just the conclusion the court made here. It looked at the body of evidence, the mountain of evidence on one side that was objective and verifiable and largely uncontested regarding the lines of CD10 and how they comply with traditional redistricting criteria. And the other hand, they looked at two statements, essentially, from at various stages of the process and analyzed all of that. And the courts, all of them unanimously, the district court judge and then the Ninth Circuit, held that that was not sufficient to survive summary judgment. And I think that is the correct ruling here. You can't have a situation where you go to trial on every single shot claim. If a, if a trial is warranted on our claim here or this claim here, then I think there's never going to be summary judgment resolution of a shot claim. Um, the set of facts is, is pretty is pretty strong. And one thing I want to echo what Robin said, the court also looked at and took into account not just the the justifications put forward in the commission report and by the council for drawing its lines, but the process was important here. This is a unique situation, I think. We had an extensive, almost unprecedented public process for a local jurisdiction in drawing our lines here. And the the number of hours that the commission spent in public debating the lines and the number of public meetings and, and the public of review and vetting of all the changes that the commission and then the council made, I think that went a long way to give confidence to a court that the process was proper here and the lines are drawn for the right reason here, and this case is not appropriate to go further than summary judgment. Robin, could I ask you, you know, one, we've spoken about the, the evidence supporting the city's side here. One central claim and also a, a question now before the Supreme Court in the plaintiff's petition, the petitioner's petition, is that more evidence should have been allowed discovery for the plaintiffs. To, so Rick Sankey contends he should have been able to ask, for example, Herb Wesson, you know, he is the city council president. He says after the fact, uh, members of his community that the intent was to make sure CD10 had an African-American representative for 30 years. And he said to that community, we have successfully done that. You know, Rex says we should be able to depose him and ask him what you know, was his true motivation? What was the motivation of the other commissioners? Why was the Ninth Circuit correct to say, you know, nope, that protective order was fine. Plaintiffs don't get to, in this case, ask questions of, of those folks. Well, there, there are two pieces in that question that need to be kept apart. They're related. But the, the first question is, what could they ask? And that gets into the privilege issue. But the other question, and the one I think that you're asking, Brian, has to do with the very well-developed body of law about not deposing high-ranking officials if you, unless the plaintiff can show that there is no other way to get the evidence. When, when you're asking about 
why shouldn't they have been allowed to? I, I think that that the the question of of the legislative privilege here is, you know, the one that that the plaintiffs are trying very hard to to ask the court to take. And I think that <clears throat> they need to keep in mind that that the Ninth Circuit in dealing with the legislative privilege was following Supreme Court jurisprudence to the letter. What it was doing was to follow the court's opinion in Village of Arlington Heights versus Metropolitan Something Commission, and and there the the court made it very clear that you just are not supposed to be in a race case um, asking decision makers, legislators, um, about their motives. You're not to bring them to the stand. The court said that the evidence that should be used to prove racial discrimination should consist of three things, the historical background of the ordinance, the sequence of events leading up to it, and whether the body departed from procedural or substantive norms. And they said only in the most extraordinary instances should you call a legislature, legislator to the stand, and even then testimony may be barred by privilege. Well, the Ninth Circuit said you have not shown that this was an extraordinary instance. Uh, you have not shown that there was enough evidence to justify calling these legislators to the stand. And remember that, as Harit said, the the Supreme Court has looked at these redistricting cases as um, as very sensitive, and and rightly so, because in in Miller versus Johnson is is the uh, case that the I think the court made it most clear, but the, the court there talked about the the how difficult it is to be aware of racial considerations, which, given the Voting Rights Act, you must be, and being motivated by them. And that distinction may be very difficult to make. It also talked about the sensitive nature of redistricting, and it said these things put together require courts to exercise extraordinary caution in adjudicating claims that a district, a state has drawn district lines on the basis of race, and in determining whether to permit discovery or trial to proceed. Well, that's your summary judgment issue. That's where the court is saying you need very, uh, you need to use a great deal of caution in determining whether to permit discovery or a trial to proceed on these redistricting cases. So when the plaintiffs say that, you know, that this is a race case and therefore, you know, important interests are at stake, um, we need to put that in the context of these redistricting cases. And we need to, to remember what Harit had said earlier, and that is if, if a case like this, if, if an allegation that two members out of the 37 there were 37 total decision makers on this. On this record, that two members talked about race and may have been motivated by that, um, then every case is going to go all the way to trial. And there will be no you know, caution exercised here on these cases. So I think that the important thing that the court should be looking at, the Supreme Court, 
in trying to decide whether to take this case is in the context of all of our redistricting jurisprudence. Do we really want to unleash this kind of discovery and this kind of, of basically attack on every redistricting that's going to happen? And there are thousands of them that will happen after the 2020 census data come out. Um, thousands. Because every state and local city council, every state legislature, is going to have to redraw its lines. And somebody's going to be unhappy with those lines. So that is inevitable in the redistricting process. Mm. So what this court, I think, needs to look at, and what I'm sure it, it is looking at, is, wow, do, do we really want to open that up um, so that really this redistricting task, which is primarily a political one, um, becomes so weaponized with litigation that it cannot be accomplished. Can I just ask you one more sort of follow-on to that, Robin, and Harit, also feel free to jump in. So if the Supreme Court should really only step in in extreme circumstances, I know this sort of goes beyond the four corners of this case, but what are those extreme circumstances and, and, and what separates this case from those? You know, if the Supreme Court says, well, here there is some some statements that sort of sound, you know, pretty much like predominant race considering. So, you know, maybe this is one of those extreme circumstances. What separates this case from those extreme cases that you're, you're saying need to be re- the ones that are reserved for review? Well, I, I could take a first crack at that. And that, sure. I think of two things in our situation that make it not the extreme case. <clears throat> and it's ones we've articulated already. It's one, that the city is engaged here in a public process through a redistricting commission composed of citizens and then uh, the city council itself in public hearings drawing the maps in open session, compliant with the Brown Act and all other open meeting laws. So um, that distinguishes our situation from what I think is going on in some of those cases coming out of Virginia, North Carolina, et cetera, where it's really legislators and a line drawer in a back room with no public hearing except at the very end. I think that's a signal to the court that this case is different than those cases. The, the public nature, I think, is, the, is the, the largest reason why our process is different. And then the utilization of a redistricting commission, I think that does make a difference between our situation and other situations out there. And finally, I think a court could look at, you know, although, although the court has held that a plaintiff does not need to show that traditional restrict, or sorry, that, it, that a traditional redistricting criteria are incompatible with racial gerrymandering. I think the compliance with traditional criteria is important. And a court will be able to look at a map and see whether it complies with compactness, with keeping communities of interest together. It'll look at shape. It'll look at other things like that as signals for something gone awry. Here in our situation, we don't have that at all. We have a compact district. We have one that's keeping neighborhoods together at a greater extent than ever before. And that's reducing its population deviation. I think without those types of signals, I think a court should let you know, the policymakers make their decision. I think if those signals are the other way, if there is some departure from traditional criteria, if there is a non-public process, if there's process only conducted just by legislators, I think those are the types of signals to the court to take a second look. But those don't exist here. Uh, let me add that in, in the Easley versus Cromartie, what we call Cromartie 2 case, the, the court made it pretty clear that the sort of evidence that the plaintiffs are putting forth here 
isn't nearly enough. It actually re- reversed a um, three-judge court that had found that there were <clears throat> that there was racial gerrymandering based on evidence very similar to this. But um, the court said that's that's just not enough. So what we have is, as a matter of law, evidence like this is just not going to to produce a a case, one of these extreme circumstances that the Supreme Court has said is necessary in order to prove racial gerrymandering in a redistricting case. Right. Okay. Well, we'll certainly see how the court feels. We've got the petition and and your opposition in now, so it's in the court's hands, but we'll leave it there uh, for right now. Robin Johansson from Remcho Johansson, Johansson Purcell, LLP, and Harit Trivedi from the Los Angeles City Attorney's Office. Thanks both very much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Thank you. And that's our show for May 17th, 2019. Thanks again to all my guests, Rex Heinke, Robin Johansson, and Harit Trivedi. Also, thanks to my production staff here, principally Nick Perez, and thank you for tuning in. It is greatly appreciated. Don't forget two things. One, CLE credit is easily available for listeners of the show. Find it on our site, which also is a great resource for all sorts of other CLE options. But for a CLE based on the show you just listened to, just find that show, dailyjournal.com. Look for the podcast section. Take a short true-false test. Remit the fee. And one hour CLE credit is yours. Also, don't forget to find us at Weekly Appellate Report in the podcast app, iTunes, and various podcast streaming avenues you may use. Doing so helps other folks find the show and also rating and reviewing us. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.